that night that I walked into Teal's hospital room and I saw her on the bed, I felt my guides saying to me, this life you've been living is over. You have to become a better person. I felt called to become a better person. I felt called to just do everything differently. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and influential guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and Zestful Ager. And if you like this podcast, you'll love my companion course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You'll have access to what I've learned from being a psychotherapist for 30 years and the latest research on what habits really matter and contribute to vibrant aging. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky beside me, my coffee in my hand, so let's begin. Today we're speaking with Suzanne Falter, who is proof of how human beings can rise again from the most difficult circumstances. She's the author of multiple self-help books, including How Much Joy Can You Stand and Living Your Joy. And her essays have appeared in Self, More, Fitness, New Woman, the New York Times, as well as O. She's the host of the Self-Care Soother podcast, and she inspires others to bring real self-care into their lives. Hi, Suzanne. Hello. Hello, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I am so excited to talk to you because I think you really bring um, a new depth and understanding to this whole concept of self-care, which we've, we've heard a lot about. I think women at least who I've spoken to, kind of know they should be doing it. Um, And it's kind of tricky. So can you just start us off telling us a little bit about how you got to focus on self-care and maybe what your your unusual take is? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, What got me started on the path of self-care was being radically diverted from the path of self-care by being a driven entrepreneur with my mind on making my big bucks and working my ass off and becoming (laughs) a slave to uh, values that weren't exactly in line with what my soul and my heart wanted. I don't really know when that all started, but by the time I was in my early 50s, I was really driven and I had just changed my life. I had moved from the East Coast to San Francisco and I had come out as a lesbian and I was changing it all and I was an internet marketing guru and I was that person who sent you too many emails and annoyed the hell out of you. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, um, you know, I'd say I was a pretty brittle character who uh, didn't much care about essentials like kindness to others and certainly not to myself. What happened to me in that period 
was that everything fell apart. I had been in a relationship that suddenly ended. The home I was living with went with the relationship. The business I had come to San Francisco to build had been very successful, but it flamed out because I couldn't sustain it because I was working too many hours a day. And then my daughter, who was 22 years old, dropped dead from a medically unexplainable cardiac arrest. Oh, my goodness. So uh, I had to radically redo my life. And there was this moment, um, you know, she, the cause of her death is a mystery. We'll never know exactly what happened. But basically, I went to dinner with her. And two hours later, I got a call. I, I had left her in a restaurant where she was getting a ride home from another friend who was there. And uh, she'd been acting kind of weird, but it wasn't totally weird, and I wasn't quite sure. Now, she had epilepsy, but it was a well-controlled case, and I really mm. didn't think much about it. Um, I was under the mistaken belief that nothing really bad might happen, even if she did have a seizure. She went home. She locked herself in the bathroom of the apartment she shared with a housemate, and she had a complete cardiac arrest. Mm. And the guy who she shared the house with didn't really even know she was home, but he went to use the bathroom 15 minutes later, and the light was on, and the door was locked, and there was no response. He finally realized something was really wrong. He jimmied the lock. He got in there. He gave her CPR. Um, she, she had been without a heartbeat for anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes at that point. Oh, God. EMTs came. She was revived. Uh, but she never regained consciousness, and she was in a coma for six days until it was clear she would never be able to survive the brain damage she had received. And during that time, I went from being completely self-absorbed to the point where when I sent her off that night, I knew she was acting strange. But it didn't even occur to me that I really needed to perhaps take her to the hospital. I said, are you okay? She said, yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. She wasn't really responding in a clear way. And, uh, you know, I just had a feeling that, uh, oh, everything will be fine. And I didn't do anything about taking the next step. And now I get a call from San Francisco General saying, your daughter's in critical condition, you have to come now. So when I walked into her hospital room and I saw her lying on the bed, I knew immediately that she would die. And I also knew that her life work would become my life work. And, you know, the backstory to that is that she really wanted to be a healer. She, she said to me the day before this happened, her life purpose was to heal women with panic and anxiety. She really felt that's what she was supposed to be doing, to help people return to themselves. Mm, had she suffered from panic and anxiety yes. herself? I yes. see. Yes. So and she really, and yeah. she took drugs for her epilepsy that increased the symptoms of panic and anxiety. I see. So she never knew if she was about to have a seizure or a panic and anxiety oh, attack. Oh. And um, that was a bigger deal to her than her epilepsy. Now, Teal really wanted to be a healer, like I said, and she had just set aside a bunch of courses she was going to take at the City College in San Francisco that she was going to start literally the day after she collapsed. She had ordered her textbooks. She was ready to go. And now this. 
So I saw her lying in the bed and I realized that somehow this collapse, this death, was going to become her healing path. And then my job was to show up and do that teaching or leading work. Mm -hmm. And I also knew that I would have to heal myself before that could happen. The only way I could possibly heal myself was just to begin to tune into myself. At the time, I had no idea that had anything to do with self-care, and I had no idea where it would take me. I just knew everything had to end immediately that had been my life, and, and it can, had to begin again. And can you talk, I know it's so hard to put into words, Suzanne, but what is the experience like of the knowing? Okay, so before the knowing, you have to dissolve and surrender into not knowing. Okay. And our egos, Nicole, are organized to take us into knowing, always, mm. absolutely the most important thing. And yet, here's one of the things that was pretty incredible about Teal. She was a very, very wise young woman. She had left behind an entire notebook filled with these little quotations that were just so profound and she had was hearing them when she was meditating she meditated a great deal she would meditate and meditate and she'd get these little phrases that would that would pe that would help her um live a more balanced life you know um give fearlessly and you shall never want was one of the things that she had received and she, so she lived like this and when you start to think about your life in terms of giving instead mm -hmm. of taking, when you start to think about not knowing instead of knowing. You know, when you start to think about the body directing you, you know, that's when you become surrendered and that's when you become able to live a life that is really deeply grounded in self-care. I was all about knowing, having control, being mm -hmm. strategic and mm -hmm. making plans. And mm -hmm. damn it if those plans were not going to make were not going to happen. <laughs> Be, and using your intellect Amen. and your you know driven and the sort of this can do, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. But let me tell you something. Where Tia lived was to um, how do I get in touch with my body? One of these little quotes said turn off your brain and ask. <laughs> and the fact that she even understood that, she, that most of us are out of touch with our bodies says to me that that's a very simple, essential piece of understanding. You know, that that's where we want to ground ourselves. So in this big, long slog back to myself, I had two years of not working. I kept thinking, now, wait a minute, this is wrong. And I had had this successful coaching business, and I kept trying to start it up. And every time I'd try to start it up, something would happen. I'd launch a course, and the learning platform for the course was hacked into five times within two days. And oh. everybody who enrolled, unenrolled. It was like the universe was not going to let me move forward. I had to surrender to not knowing. I had to become comfortable with, I don't really know where this is going to go. I don't really know what to do. And then eventually, self-care became the most important thing to me. Just tuning into myself, listening to my body, understanding what I needed to do, putting one foot in front of the other in a very, very intentional way. 
you know, I, I kept trying to sign up for hikes or, you know, go out and join meetups. And, and, and there was absolutely no reason to be doing this when you're grieving the loss of your child. But I was doing it because I had to, quote unquote, do something. And finally, I began to understand the profundity of being quiet and listening to yourself. What is a polar opposite to what you were all about, your whole identity as a go-getter, making it happen, being successful, putting your mind to it, no longer worked. That's right. Not only did it not work, it became a profound learning path back to what did work. And what was working for me was examining my life experience and learning from it. I was reading, reading, reading tons of material about healing my childhood. I was going to 12-step meetings to deal with some addictive habits that were not helpful to me. I was going to a grief group of other people who lost children. Even getting there was a journey because I had to admit, finally, that I needed that help. You know, in the beginning, I did not want to ask for help. And this is something that is essential to self-care. And most of us actually have to learn to ask for help. Mm-hmm. In, interestingly, I think it's the people who need help the most who are the most afraid to ask for it. Now, were you in a partnership at this time as no. you were? Okay, so you were by yourself. I was alone. Everything was stripped away. My son was 3,000 miles away. I was living in California. The only family member who had come along with me was Teal. My ex-husband and I were on amicable terms, but he was in the East Coast where our son was. Um, I was on my own, and worse, I had been in this really dysfunctional relationship, and I had no friends. And I and had, you had to... just And you had just come out <laughs> yeah, as well? I had just come out. I'd gotten into this relationship a year and a half earlier. It ended... The, the, I had just moved out of my apartment to move in with this partner. She ended the relationship. I had to move out. It was like everything was over, and then Teal died. So it was like the universe was preparing me for a, for a huge space of nothing. But that was really helpful because the work I do now in self-care is about helping people go back to a place of essentials, rebuilding the essentials, because really in the end, self-care is about defining your values and living by them. It's about knowing when to say no. It's about knowing what to say yes to. It's about tuning into your body. It's about making the time for what's most important in your life. Because this, of course, is the big problem. You know, this is why I have to call my book Extremely uh, Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women, mm-hmm. because we are all cranked up and living these, you know, information revved lives mm-hmm. that put us on the fast track. But the fast track is too fast. The mm-hmm. fast track wants to become the slow track. Doesn't mean we can't be successful. It means we actually do less and achieve more because we're more in harmony, in sync with the original alignment that we were given. What happened to me was I had the space and the time to reinvent my life. Mind you, I was living on very, very little money. I was, <laughs> I actually moved in with a friend. For a year and a half, I lived with one of my really good friends. This was really about a three-year period of really being very quiet. And I lived with my good friend and I took care of her dog. She went away a lot and I cooked for her. And we just had this beautiful healing little nest. And 
living there, I began to slow down. And I began to really learn the incredible healing power of returning to yourself. Because most of us have forgotten who we were when we were children. But it was all there. If we loved horses then, we probably still love horses Mm, now. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we loved being out in nature then, we definitely love being out in nature now. Yeah, I find that with clients too, you know, when they're... Uh, starting to, you know, doing, launching their kids or whatever, and they're saying, I don't know what is, is next for me. I will ask right. them that very question. What did you used to love? Because they're, they're just so, you know, they're, they're just dumbstruck about, I don't know what to do next. I haven't the foggiest notion. And yeah. so that's exactly. When you were in this, uh, oh, I don't even know what to call it, Into in, in this space of absolute, um, I don't know, emptiness, rebirth, whatever. Did you, were you conscious that this was a growing place or were you also having to deal with the heartbreak and perhaps feeling depressed or feeling, you know, uh, unable to, do what you needed to do in other words concentrate sleep eat properly all of that well the process of grief is one in which a part of your brain responsible for your executive function your ability to make decisions move forward get things done it's completely disabled Hmm. it's absolutely taken offline so most people report an inability to do those things when they're grieving you, you really can't work effectively. You're feeling like the world is too much. I remember one of the things I kept trying to do was go on hikes with, with the local Sierra Club. And I would reserve my spot dutifully, and then I would never be able to get out of bed to go. Or I would even drive to the trailhead and then turn around and drive home. I just couldn't be around people. I couldn't handle stimulation. And I was crying, crying, crying all the time. I had, I remember I had a gigantic box of Kleenex in the car and I did a lot of driving and crying. Mm. Um, it was just, you know, I live in California and the open roads and the hills in the north, northern California are just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was what I needed to do. And, who, com- you know, who comforted you, Suzanne, after you uh, lost Teal? <laughs> well... This is the crazy thing. I felt Teal around me a great deal. I felt extremely connected to her. There was an energy, a certain energy that moved through her body, through my body that felt like her. Mm -hmm. And she comforted me. And I really, I really had to comfort myself. But that's what I mean about the reaching out for help. Because when I began to go to various groups, I began to get up and talk about my experiences. People would come up to me afterwards. We would make friends. We would start to go out and have, you know, meals. And and I created an entire community for myself out of all these people that were all working on their stuff. And I was very clear that I was in a growth thing. I mean, my ex-husband and I said to each other, we're either going to be better or we're going to be bitter. And I don't know where that phrase comes from. It's out there in the grief scene. But it's really true because you can hang on to your losses as this insult that life has dealt you, or you can use them as platforms for reinvention. I believe in the healing power of crisis. 
And I believe her death was the work of healing that she was meant to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a sort of situation where you have to find something that will motivate you to return to yourself. And many of us are kind of have this uncomfortable feeling that something is too much, whether it's a relationship, our lives, our work, our health, whatever, something's out of balance. Most, most people are out of balance in some fundamental way. And yet, we don't know what to do about it. And I think my message is really bother to check in with yourself. Bother to find out, is this really an okay fit? Whatever the area of concern is. Because most of us don't want to look at it. Nicole, we think we are going to have to make changes and we are allergic to change. We believe change will destroy everything we have. And yet I'm here to say, oh, baby, destroy it. If it Mm. wants to go, it needs to go. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. I want to give the upside to this story as well. I knew, uh, you know, you asked if I was alone. I said I was alone. Um, And I knew that there was going to come a time when I would find a partner. Now, um, I didn't really know how to make that happen because I just had this first essential lesbian relationship and it was really terrible. So then it was like, okay, is this going to be how it is to be a lesbian? Because maybe I don't want to be a lesbian because that was really hard. But then I was like, hell no, I'm going to heal myself and I'm going to become a better lesbian for one thing. And I'm going to become a happy woman because I knew this was who I was supposed to be. And, um, you know, about two years after her death, I could really feel myself naturally being ready to date again. And um, I got some help with it. I had a dating coach, dating coach who showed me, you know, where to be, where to be setting some boundaries, and who to be accepting and who to not be accepting. And I, uh, out of the woodwork, all these women started showing up who were interested in dating. And I'd go out on this date and that, and I'd report back to my coach. She'd be like, what do you think? I'd be like, oh, I think she'd know. She's like, uh-uh, to look at this, this, and this. I'd be like, oh, oh yeah, maybe you're right. The red flags. Yeah, the red flags. And then I went I went to a party, um, a psychic, you know, just a funny story, a psychic I had been to. Um, when, you, when you lose a child, you immediately hear from other women who've lost children. And I had connected with a dear woman in England who had followed my work in marketing, who said, you know, I lost a child. We, we connected over Facebook. We had these wonderful, heartfelt talk. She gave me uh, a psychic reading with a good friend of hers who had also lost a child. And that woman said to me, you have a proper love. Very English. You have a proper love. And she's almost here. And she described her name to me and her profession. And I went to a party not long after that and walked in and I saw this woman and I put down my potluck as if in a <laughs> as if in a dream and I drifted over to her and sat down next to her and started talking and she had that name and she had that oh, profession and goodness. we have been married now for a couple of years and oh uh, it is it, she is the love of my life and and it is a very very proper love and and I feel that that time I spent in preparation was exactly what needed to happen. Everything came back to balance. I came back to me. I was offered a job, incredibly, writing fiction. Now, I've been a writer since 1980, and I published a novel in 1990 that nobody bought. I published it with Random House. It was 
one of those like you know books you never hear of ten thousand copies were shredded uh, my mother bought it that was about it and um you know this guy knew the book and he said i would like to invest in having you write fiction for me and i'm still writing fiction for him and those books there's six of them out now and, uh, you know, I'm also writing nonfiction. I just got my first nonfiction book deal in 15 years, and I've been publishing essays again, and I have returned to my authentic work as a writer, which is really where I should be, and it's working. And, and today, I'm teaching people this work about self-care, because that is the basis of all of my nonfiction work now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, for, uh, it, I'm, I don't even know what, to how to respond to this it's so much I mean it just sounds like your life there's there's no way that it resembles your previous life there's no way there's no it's like a different person Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I'd say that's true I do feel I did feel that morning um that night that I walked into Teal's hospital room and I saw her on the bed, I felt my guides saying to me, this life you've been living is over. Mm-hmm. You have to become a better person. I felt called to become a better person. I felt called to just do everything differently. Did you think in your earlier life, your go-getter, you call it your you know, selfish, self-absorbed life, did you know at that time that you were self-absorbed or well, you didn't have enough um, awareness to even think about that? You know, I didn't know I was self-absorbed. What I knew was I was determined. And I believed the way to make things happen was to push. Mm-hmm. And if I pushed hard enough, I would get the result. I was, I had become that person that nobody really likes because they're kind of in your face, you know? And I couldn't see myself doing it. But what I also knew was that I was deeply unhappy and that what I had chosen to do was not sustainable. But I didn't want to admit it. But I knew it. It was back there. That awareness was lingering. And that mm-hmm. was the far more important thing. I mean, obviously, we don't want to be pushy people but we really want to be happy people. Mm-hmm. And we are wired for happiness. When we're born, we're happy. Mm-hmm. We learn how to behave in ways that create our unhappiness. Mm-hmm. And the unlearning of that is where this deeper self-care comes from. You know, and that's like, it's like uh, realignment. You know, it's like we're going into the, um, you know, the, 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 the car garage the body shop and we're we're getting you know we're getting a realignment on the wheels i mean it's like that it's got to happen because the chassis is still there but you got to make it run so it really hugs the road and it really feels good and it hasn't gotten all you know out of whack from going through too many potholes you know (laughs) it's interesting to imagine where your life would be had teal never died well, I think about that, it, and I'm so pleased you brought that up because I, I really feel that I am better for this experience. I mean, do I miss her? Yes. Do I still cry about her? Sometimes. But I do feel, first of all, I feel, I will always feel connected to Teal. I had this incredible experience. 
sometimes. I mean, I'm going to feel a little teary telling this story, but so forgive me. But um, around the time I moved in with my wife before we were married, um, I was unpacking my clothing and putting it away. And I, I, put, I found a picture of her and I stuck it in the mirror above my bureau and I was looking at it and, um, and I suddenly missed her and I started to cry and I heard her say in my mirror, read your t-shirt. <laughs> and I was wearing a t-shirt, right? But it was a graphic tee with these sort of swirly letters and I had never actually read what they said. I just really liked the colors. It was a beautiful dusty pink with little brown and cream, you know, kind of this really swirly writing on it. And I actually took the t-shirt off and laid it on the bed and looked at it. And behind all the swirls, the t-shirt said, eternal love. Mm. It was so beautiful. It was such a profound moment. I mean, oh my gosh. how can you not think your life has been improved by mm. that kind of insight? Mm-hmm. You know? That depth of experience. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, look. Whatever I do for the rest of my life, it's going to be informed by this level of this gift, this Mm -hmm. gift of self-awareness. And, you know, I also speak about my experience with the donation of Teal's organs and my connection to the mother of the young woman who got her heart and her kidney, which is a whole other story. And... They are all these stories, the self-care story, the organ donation story. They all lead us back to the same thing, which is universal field, the unified field of love. After Teal's death, I felt her around me telling me in my writing, it kept popping up this little phrase, the unified field of love. The unified field of love is a place where we all connect. It's a place where we are all normal. We are all healing. We are all friendly. We are all kind. We're all so mm-hmm. pretty darn smart. And we can help each other. But we have to understand that we are all connected and we forget. And that's ultimately the story behind all of this. It's about self-care for yourself. And that will help you become more caring of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's just so profound. And what about the barriers that you see with people you work with? What gets in the way of them embracing their own <clears throat> self-care? Well, I do think most people do not realize that they don't have to take care of everybody else quite as much as they do. Um, I did a survey among 100 readers about what keeps them from having better self-care. And... Some of them said money, lack of money, and some of them said lack of time. But the big one was, I feel like I have to take care of everybody else. Mm -hmm. Guilt. Guilt is a biggie. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, how can I take care of myself? My children might need me right now. Mm -hmm. How can I take care of myself? My aging parents are alone and probably feeling very lonely right now. How can I take care of myself? This, you know, this money needs to go towards uh, somebody else's, you know, benefit. It's just, look, you know, that, it's been said a million times, I'm going to say it again, that example on the airplane about oxygen mask first, Mm -hmm. it's foundational, you know. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm guessing that just from <laughs> my experience as a therapist, this may be more of a problem with women than men. Typically. Oh, yeah. Way. Mm. Well, most of the people who follow my work are women. Mm -hmm. And so that could be why I hear that more. But um, I would say men are also beginning to tap into the power of self-care because they have permission to, because it's becoming such a cultural norm and such a cultural necessity. Mm -hmm. And I'm really pleased it is because the, neuro, um, the um, neurological studies being done around the impact of technology show that we are frequently um, being led to less and less empathy. The increased screen time, which has gone from four to five hours per day, per user, screen time on phones, I'm not talking about your computer, I'm talking about your phone, that is leading people to become far less empathetic with each other. It's all mm -hmm. also creating a false reality where we believe the way we treat people online is not necessarily uh, the same as we treat them in person. A writer was speaking recently, I, I read her book. Mm. I'm going to have trouble remembering this. But anyway, I read a book by a mm -hmm. commentator, a left, a liberal commentator who has worked on both Fox News and CNN, who was speaking about how um, she started calling the people who were flaming her and sending her really obnoxious, angry, rude, and unkind tweets. So she started contacting them and saying, would you be willing to have a conversation? And they gamely agreed. They'd get on the line with her and she'd say, you know, start chatting and they'd find out they had points of interest. And she'd say, well, would you say what you said online to me in person? Would you ever say that? And they, they always said, oh, God, no, I'd never say that to you in person. Mm. Because we live in a manufactured world online. People are not real. Feelings are not real. This is where I think our, our own personal erosion of our values mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. you know, we're living in a time of unkindness. And uh, it's, it's from a, the top down. Well, wherever we stand, unkindness mm -hmm. is never going to heal us. Unkindness is never going to be an act of self-care. Righteous anger is never going to lead us to anything other than self-harm if we allow it to take over our lives. Doesn't mean we can't have objections, set boundaries, make requests, be firm. Not talking about that. I'm talking about name-calling. I'm talking about cruelty, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. wherever it originates. And I, and I truly feel that my work now is to share this legacy you know, this, this, this legacy of love and of, um, you know, living, living in a way that really honors you, really honors you being, you know, as Teal put it, being someone in the world who loves loving yourself, hmm. you know? And, and do you recommend to your followers or clients to be very careful about the media that they are digesting? Well, I don't make recommendations about that. What I make recommendations about is for people to get in touch with what is important to them. And I do, and I, and I by the way, I don't have clients. I, I speak to groups and I, um, I write books and I... Um, 
you know, have a Facebook group and stuff like that. Um, and that's where I interact with people. But, but, what I, but what I really know to be true is that when we are out there, um, you know, exposing our, our opinion and, and receiving opinions and engaging in the media, we're sensitive. And, and our filters are not always good at keeping out violence. I mean, the violence in the film industry is intense. Mm-hmm. The violence in the media is intense. The violence on social media is intense. If anything, I think walk away from the phone, put the screens down, reduce your screen time, mm-hmm. really reduce your screen time, put the moment app on your phone. Moment, uh, and actually most, um, uh, most smartphones now come with screen time trackers. If you have a, a newer phone, mm-hmm. if you don't, there are apps out there for tracking your screen time. It's really interesting to do it. And it will tell you how much or how little you have. I had a habit for a long, long time of getting up and dialing up the New York Times app every day. I just yeah. had to read it, had mm. to stay hooked on, you know, the drama of the politics of the moment. And, you know, I've gathered a lot of information as a result. But what I was doing was I was killing the default mode. The default mode is a place the brain goes when we're just looking out the window or we're sitting and having coffee doing nothing or we're, you know, sitting in a hot bath, just relaxing. The default mode is the brain's place of giving us the chance to daydream. And within those daydreams is where we get insights. We get awarenesses. Mm -hmm. We get creative solutions to things, Mm -hmm. brainstorms. When we go into default mode, we are able to get the guidance from our body and our heart and our spirit that allow us to see what must happen next. That's a, that's a very, very important thing. And, and the default mode has been destroyed by screen time spent every second you are having downtime, sitting mm-hmm. on the subway, sitting you're being in traffic. stimulated. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're getting information when actually none would be a better choice. I'm not saying be a Luddite. We can't mm-hmm. do that. We got to stay mm-hmm. engaged. We got to keep our wits about us here. But I do think that there's a way to get more in balance with it, you know, and, and allow yourself to have some downtime every day. Amazing huh. things happen when you do. It sounds like you you have a good understanding of some of the science and the neurology behind some of these practices. Oh, I too. love, yeah, sure. I, well, mm-hmm. I'm a big reader. I'm, I'm a voracious reader. And, and uh, there is so much information out there available about it. And, I, and I'm always researching for the essays I'm writing and, and um, so forth. I just, I just think we are sensitive souls, you know, and, and we forget that. Most of us are people who need to be better taken care of than we ever thought. <laughs> you know, because really, our culture has supported, our, in the U.S. at least, our culture has supported being, um, you know, driven, efficient, mm-hmm. having goals, working our asses off, mm-hmm. making things happen. And out in, you know, the land of the cosmos or wherever our, our spirits sit, our job is simply to move through our life lessons as they present ourselves and to go to introspection and to go to learning and to go to deeper knowing. Doesn't really happen if you're fixated on the first. I know mm. from personal experience. <laughs> mm. Mm. 
Do you want to give our listeners a couple little small steps to uh, to start with if they're interested in bringing more self-care into their lives? Yes, I'll tell you what. Um, I do have some support tools. Uh, like I said, I have a very um, I have a very fun group. Uh, that's on Facebook. It's called the Self-Care Group for Extremely Busy Women. Okay. Uh, I have a podcast called the Self-Care Soother mm-hmm. Podcast. And, I, I, you know, there are also various uh, things I, you know, you can find. I have a really nice resource library at SuzanneFalter.com that just okay. has lots of little tools in it. Mm-hmm. Really, the goal is for everybody to find questions to ask themselves that will lead them back to self-care. And the first thing I recommend anybody get is go out and get a good old empty notebook and a pen. Just start to probe the things that are bothering you. Start to ask yourself this fundamental question, what do I need right now? Mm-hmm. I'll have my clients sometimes, you know, put their hands over their heart. Oh, yeah. And say, what do I need right now? Mm-hmm. I've definitely done that myself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's kind of an interesting question because sometimes you come up with a big blank And that's when you know that your self-care may very well be out of balance. You know, what I've noticed in this process is I've become so much more aware of my own emotional wisdom. I've become much more uh, aware of what triggered me from the past, much more aware of my own emotions. You know, I was a kid who grew up with a fair amount of trauma, so I didn't really have a sense of my emotions. It's how I got so far out of balance in the first place. Mm -hmm. And as a therapist, you know the value of returning to your true emotions. Right. So if people want to learn more about you, is a good place, the SuzanneFalter.com, is that? Okay. Yeah, you'll find the podcast there links to the group, my resources, uh-huh. you know, I have a little self-care online course, which is kind of fun. All that stuff lives at S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-F like Frank, A-L-T-E-R dot com. Or you can Google that, me and you'll find it. <laughs> That's perfect. And I will put that in the show notes so oh, people great. will be able to find it. Suzanne, I, I so appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today and it's really from the heart it's it's you know living through so much pain and coming out the other side and I really think that our audience will be inspired by your your journey you're a dear thank you so much for having me on Nicole and I love your warm and open manner it's 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 good for the world Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com.
In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. See you then.